Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. We are continuing our study through the book of Acts. Today we're at the midway point of a three-part study I've titled Preaching and Persecution in Pisidian Pantioch. No, it's Antioch. I wanted to add a P in there for the last one. But we're covering this in Acts chapter 13, verses 14 through 52. But in part two today, we're going to be studying verses 26 through 41. But first, let's read verses 14 through 25 together as we just kind of keep the context. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 14. It says, But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now, For a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed distributed land to them by allotment. Their land to them by allotment, I should say. After that, he gave them judges, verse 20, for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, He raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. From this man's seed, verse 23, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. After John had first preached before his coming, the the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. At the beginning of our section of scriptures, which we studied last week, we found Paul and Barnabas being given an invitation by the ruler of the synagogue to give this word of exhortation to those who had gathered. And as we saw, there was a mixed multitude of people. There was Jews, the brethren... And also some Gentiles. Those were the people who feared God. Paul included the Gentiles so that they would know that the Jesus he was about to preach was not just a savior for the Jewish people, but also for the Gentiles as well. And then Paul started to recount some different major moments and spans of time in Israel's history, putting all the emphasis on what God had done for his people which again stands out, as we saw last week, in contrast with what the nation of Israel had done, their their constant rebellion and rejection and waywardness. And Paul exalted the grace and mercy and patience and forgiveness and faithfulness of God in spite of all the Jews had done throughout their history. After bringing up these different major points in Israel's history, Paul led them to David, who God made specific promises to when it came to his kingdom and and line and the coming Messiah. And after that, Paul drew a straight line from David to Jesus. It was from 
David's seed, his lineage, according to the promise that God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. God had been guiding his people Israel throughout all these major points and spans of time in their history with all of their rebellion. And ultimately, God's plan was to bring about a Savior for for Israel and all of humanity, and that being fulfilled in Jesus. See, Paul's reminder of the history of the nation of Israel made it abundantly clear that what was needed for them, needed for all of us, is, is that we need a Savior. And Paul reinforced his argument by bringing up John the Baptist, who, again, the Jews of that time regarded as a prophet, and he was a prophet because John was all about Jesus. He exalted Jesus. He made it clear that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that he is the Son of of God, that he is the Messiah they had been waiting for and who John had come to prepare the way for as prophecy foretold. And as Paul has been building it all up to this point in his sermon, we're going to see today that Paul's going to further elevate and magnify who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us and the responsibility each of us has to respond to the truth of Jesus and the grace that he offers by believing, by putting our faith in him in order to be forgiven and justified or made righteous in the sight of God because of Jesus' salvation. So with that in mind, look at verse 26 as we pick up our account. Acts 13, 13, verse 26, Paul says, Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you... The word of this salvation has been sent. So Paul's now making this personal. He's no longer speaking about a span of time or major moments in time in Israel's history in the past or even more recently with those things being fulfilled in Jesus who John the Baptist pointed to. But now he addresses this mixed multitude of Jews and Gentiles for a second time in his sermon, and says, it's to you. You're going to see Paul. We already know he was motioning with his hands. Maybe at this point, Paul is actually kind of looking at the people, and he's going, it's to you. I'm not saying like, hey, this is for some, somebody else way back in the past. It's for you right now. This word of salvation is for you and maybe pointing to the Jews and then pointing to the Gentiles and and all of them going, this is is for us. You know, it's, it's one thing when you're talking about a story that has nothing to do with you, but it's another thing when you're talking about something that applies to the person that you're speaking to. And Paul here is saying this applies to you. If these Jews and Gentiles in the congregation there in the synagogue had never heard the message of salvation, the gospel message before, Paul was making sure they knew it was being delivered to them right then and that this message of salvation was for all of them. And because this word of salvation was for them, he's going to make it clear at the end of his sermon that they were now responsible for what they had heard making it clear that the gospel message that brings salvation demands a response. So it's now become personable, personable, personal, not personable. But let's see what he continues to say in verses 27 through 29. 
He says in verse 27, For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Paul again just spent the first portion of his sermon shining a spotlight on all God had done throughout Israel's history leading up to him raising up a savior for Israel, that savior being Jesus. But now in light of what God had done, who God had sent, Paul now shines a spotlight on what those in Jerusalem and their leaders had done and what they had fulfilled. And this is a strong indictment of those who dwelt in Jerusalem and their rulers, speaking of the religious leaders, that though Jesus, the Savior that God raised up for Israel, had walked among them and taught with power and authority and healed the sick and crippled and the blind and the deaf and and lepers, Even though he had cast out demons and raised the dead and fed multitudes and loved and served selflessly and sacrificially, even though he had fulfilled Old Testament prophecy regarding the first coming of the Messiah, those dwelling in Jerusalem and their rulers did not know him, Paul says. Now that phrase, did not know, It means to refuse to acknowledge or be ignorant about or disregard. Paul's not saying, you know what? They just didn't know about Jesus. They never saw him. They never heard about him. No, he's saying that in spite of seeing him, in spite of hearing him, that they disregarded him, that they refused to acknowledge him for who he really was and is. See, understand, even early on in Jesus' ministry, the religious leaders recognized the power of God was at work in Jesus' life. Check out what we're told in John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. We're told there, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, notice, we know We know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. See, just as their forefathers in the time of the judges rejected God as king over them, the religious leaders rejected the son of God and king of kings who came and lived among them, rejecting what was clearly the power and authority of God on display in front of them in the person of Jesus Christ, things that made it abundantly clear he was the Messiah they had been waiting for, who the Father had sent in order to save them, but they did not want him. They didn't want him. It's not like there wasn't sufficient proof It's that they just didn't want him. Later on, we're told that they delivered him up to Pilate because of envy. They envied him. 
They saw what he could do and they were envious of the kind of power that he had, of the kind of authority that he spoke with. And so because of that, they said, we got to get rid of him. And not only did they disregard and refuse to acknowledge Jesus, but Paul goes on to say in verse 27 that they did the same thing with the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. So the things that have been read and known for hundreds of years, the things spoken by God through the prophets of old that he sent, even those prophecies that they should have acknowledged, they should have accepted, were disregarded by them. Paul says that the religious leaders and those dwelling in Jerusalem who were a part of Jesus' death actually fulfilled prophecy by condemning Jesus. Instead of receiving the one who the prophets had foretold, they condemned him. They declared him guilty. They did this by crying out that Pilate should crucify Jesus, even though there was no cause, no reason for him to be sentenced to death. Jesus was innocent and sinless, but that didn't matter to them. They wanted Jesus gone, and they got their wish by having him brutally murdered on a Roman cross. And when they, speaking of those among the Jews who got him killed, fulfilled all that was written concerning him regarding his death, which was prophesied in Scripture, he was taken down from the tree, taken down from the cross by two men who had been secret followers of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, and they laid him in Joseph's unused tomb. But notice that in verse 29 that Paul says they took him down from the tree. Now, this was intentional on Paul's part as this reinforces that Jesus, the only innocent one, became a curse for us on the cross. It's something that Paul writes to these Galatian believers later on and references, no doubt a follow-up to what he spoke to them in this sermon before they were even saved. But I like what, Paul, uh, I like what David Gutzik actually said about Paul's reference to Jesus being on a tree. He said, in calling the cross a tree, Paul drew on the idea from Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. In that passage, it says that God curses a person who is hanged from a tree. Paul wanted to communicate the idea that Jesus was cursed so that we could be blessed. And he references Galatians 3.13. See, according to what Paul wrote to these people a later, little later on after this in Galatians 3.13, Jesus became a curse for us so that he could redeem us from the curse of the law. You know, it speaks of that beautiful and tragic exchange that took place on the cross where Jesus took all of our sin and he gave us all of his righteousness. That he would become a curse so that you and I could have the curse of sin lifted from our lives through his salvation. But again, Paul points out what the people and their rulers did. This is, this is what they fulfilled. 
all of it terrible as they disregarded the Savior that God raised up and had him murdered. But in contrast to that, in the following verses, we're going to see what God did. All of it amazing. Because through Jesus' resurrection, we're able to have life also passing from death to life, as Jesus said in John chapter 5. So let's read verse 30 as we move on and begin to see Paul point out what God fulfilled. We saw what the religious leaders fulfilled, but let's see what God fulfilled. Verse 30, it says, but God raised him from the dead. You know, this phrase, but God, those two words are a powerful phrase in the New Testament, often in contrast to something in need of God's intervention, something seemingly beyond help, something mankind produced that left it in a state of brokenness and desperation. Here we see what mankind produced in its rebellion, killing the Son of God and putting him in a tomb, but God stepped in and raised him from the dead. And when I think about that phrase, but God, I can't help but think of the application in our lives. Think about our current circumstances. Think about your and my past failures, our current state of affairs in our country and world, all the brokenness, all the need, all the hopelessness, all the destruction and death and depravity and desperation, so much that seems beyond help or hope, but God, but God. Mankind just put Jesus in a tomb. I mean, if that's a crowning achievement of humanity, that's, that's pretty telling of what our efforts can do apart from God. What our efforts have brought is we killed the Son of God. That's not a very positive thing. It's not positive at all. But God... Think about what's happened in our lives, but, but God stepped in. Think about where you were before Christ saved you of your sins. Think about that moment in time where you passed from death to life. That's a, that's a telling reinforcement of this phrase, but God. In Ephesians, when when Paul is saying, look, you were dead in sin and trespasses. You were in darkness. You were going along with the prince of the power of the air. You were under Satan's influence and control. You were doing his bidding. But God, who is rich in mercy, but God, by his grace, he saved you. He made you alive. But God. What can God do? Think about the things that are going on in your life right now. That you feel like, I don't know how God's going to make this thing work. I don't know how he's going to fix this. But God, would we today stamp that phrase over our troubles? 
Will we stamp it over our circumstances? Will we stamp it over the things in our mind that we're struggling with that maybe other people don't even know about? That secret sin that you can't seem to find victory over. But God. Our God is a big and powerful God, not only able to raise Jesus from the dead, but also able to bring about resurrection to things in our lives. Able to take those things that seem dead, that seem beyond hope or help. And he's the God who's able to bring beauty from ashes. Man put Jesus in the tomb, but God raised him in glory. This is the kind of God that we have, y'all. He is a great and awesome God. Nothing is impossible for him. Nothing is too hard for him. Paul moves on, though. He continues to reinforce this in verses 31 through 37. Let's read those verses together. Verse 31, it says, He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, meaning he died. He was buried with his fathers and saw corruption, but he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Paul makes it clear in verse 31 that he and Barnabas weren't making up some fanciful story that can't be verified. Jesus' resurrection isn't a fictional story to be added to their Greek mythology. No, he was seen by many eyewitnesses in his resurrected state at different points during the span of 40 days, as we're told in the beginning of Acts chapter 1. And in fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about some of those eyewitnesses saying that Jesus was even seen by over 500 brethren at one time, and that last of all, he was seen by Paul as, one, as by one born out of due time. Jesus' resurrection was not a hidden event. It was open and visible with many of those eyewitnesses still alive at that very moment who could testify of how they had seen Jesus after his crucifixion and burial very much alive because he had been raised from the dead to never die again. And Paul himself could verify that because he saw Jesus alive on the road to Damascus when Jesus appeared to him and blinded him, knocking him to the ground, humbling him. 
As we see in verse 32, Paul and Barnabas were declaring to these people glad tidings, good news, the gospel. This good news, this gospel message about the coming Messiah that Jesus fulfilled were promises that God made to the fathers, promises that he was faithful to make good on. God made these promises to the fathers, but had fulfilled them for their children. Paul says, to us, meaning that they were the recipients of those promises and that God raised up Jesus. And then in verses 33 through 35, Paul further reinforces this by giving three Old Testament passages or promises that found their fulfillment in Jesus and his resurrection. And just to shed some more light on why Paul quotes these Old Testament passages here, I like what Warren Wearsby said about this. He said, since Paul was addressing a synagogue congregation, he used the Old Testament scriptures to support his argument. In Acts 13.33, Paul, uh, he says, Psalm, uh, sorry, in Acts 13.33, Psalm 2.7 is quoted. And note that it refers to the resurrection of Christ, not to the birth of Christ. The virgin tomb, which he references John 19, 47, where it says that Jesus was placed in an unused tomb, he says was like a womb that gave birth to Jesus Christ in resurrection glory. Then he quoted Isaiah 55, verse 3, referring to the covenant that God made with David, the sure mercies of David. God had promised David that from him the Messiah would come 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 17. This was an everlasting covenant with a throne to be established forever, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 13 and 16. If Jesus is the Messiah and he died and remained dead, this covenant could never be fulfilled. Therefore, Jesus had to be raised from the dead or the covenant would prove false. Warren Risby continues on to say his third quotation was from Psalm 1610, the same passage Peter quoted in his message at, at Pentecost in Acts 2, verses 24 through 28. The Jews considered Psalm 16 to be a messianic psalm, and it was clear that this promise did not apply to David, who was dead, buried, and decayed. It had, it had to apply to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. See, by... Paul quoting these promises, he's making it clear that God foretold these things way in advance. And these things were fulfilled by Jesus. He is the Son of God, who God raised up. He is the one who the everlasting covenant and throne belong to. He's the one who died and was buried, but never saw corruption, unlike David this word of salvation, these glad tidings, this gospel message, this promise made to the fathers is centered upon and find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Paul has been building up to this moment in his sermon, exalting the person and work of Jesus, the Savior, and, and now he's going to drive it all home with some final truths of some spiritual realities that can only come 
through Jesus. And as he does that, he's also going to call the people to respond to this message of salvation while pointing out their own responsibility, as we'll see in these final moments of his sermon. And so with that, let's read verses 38 and 39. Verse 38 says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you cannot be justified by the law of Moses. So Paul now drives this gospel message home by telling them that they need to know that through Jesus is preached the forgiveness of sins. And not only forgiveness of sins, but he adds that by Jesus, everyone who believes, who puts their faith in Jesus Christ is is justified in the sight of, of God, something that the law of Moses could not do for us. See, forgiveness means that we have things that we're guilty of and need to be forgiven of. And this isn't a light thing because it required Jesus' blood to be shed, his life to be given, because it's through his blood that we're able to have forgiveness of sins, our debt being paid in full, him removing our sins as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again by him. Those of us who have received Jesus' forgiveness know how powerful this is. It's, it's something that we need to remember often. Now, we've been forgiven. Justification, though, is a separate act from God's forgiveness. Justification is actually where God declares us righteous when we put our faith in Jesus and receive his free gift of salvation and forgiveness. Justification is where the Father takes the righteousness of Jesus and puts it into our account. Not just taking away our guilt through Christ's forgiveness, but also adding in Christ's righteousness. And it's our justification, as Paul says in Romans 5 verse 1, that brings about peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can be forgiven by God. We can be justified. We can be made righteous in the sight of God and have peace with God, but All of those things are only found in Jesus Christ. See, none of us are able to to perfectly fulfill the law. Those 633 do's and don'ts, you and I have failed at least one of them. And that failure has brought about a condemnation through the law. The law isn't able to justify us because it requires us to live it out perfectly. And on top of that, none of us can justify ourselves. We can't do enough good deeds to earn a righteous standing in the sight of God because our righteousness, we're told in Scripture, is viewed as filthy rags in the sight of God. He won't accept it. But praise God. 
that Jesus fulfilled the law for us, that he lived the perfect and righteous and sinless life we could never live. And now through his death and resurrection, he extends his gift of salvation to us, wanting to forgive and justify any and all, both Jew and Gentile, who will come to him by faith and receive his salvation and forgiveness and righteousness. It's by grace that we're saved through faith, not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.8. But as great and amazing the gospel is, this good news of Jesus and what he's done and wants to do in us and for us, there's an important warning that Paul gives also. We see that in these last two verses of his sermon. Let's read verses 40 and 41. He says, Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. See, this message brings a responsibility with it. We're held accountable to what we know, and there's a warning to those who hear this message and despise it, who think little of it and treat it with contempt, and who will not believe, who reject it in their unbelief. Paul here in verse 41, he's quoting Malachi chapter 1 verse 5, where the prophet Malachi was giving a warning regarding coming judgment as God was going to use a a pagan Gentile nation, the Babylonians, to discipline his people, the Jews. But Paul is using this warning from Malachi as a point of application to those who heard this word of salvation, this gospel message about Jesus. He's making it known that God was doing a work in their day, not of an enemy coming in to destroy, but of humble disciples of Jesus coming in with the message that could save them from eternal destruction. But listen, the warning is the same. Those who do not believe will perish. And understand the warning of God is rooted in the amazing love of God, the amazing love that he has for us, loving us enough to say hard things to us because he knows what will happen to those who reject his son. This warning is here so that what the prophet spoke won't come upon us, that we're not the ones who don't believe and who end up perishing, being separated from God for all eternity in hell. But this warning should also encourage those of us who have believed, who have put our faith, who have put our trust in Jesus Christ, that the forgiveness and justification he's given us by his his grace, he also wants to do in the lives of others. And he wants to use us to bring this word of salvation, his gospel message to the lost in the world around us and Next week, we'll see how this assembly of Jews and Gentiles react to Paul's preaching as we finish out chapter 13. But I'm gonna have the worship team come back up. Listen, in closing, these things 
for those of us who know Christ personally, should, should encourage us. It should strengthen us in our faith, reminding us of the great debt of sin that was against us. To remind ourselves that God is a forgiving God because, yes, he's forgiven us. He's, he's given us forgiveness, but you and I continue to, to, to sin against him over the course of our lives, and we continue to need that forgiveness over and over again, and it reminds us that our God is always ready to forgive. Those things where we, those times where we fail, those areas where we struggle, that God is a God who forgives. He's patient and gracious and merciful with you and me. These things should, should strengthen us in our faith as we realize the spiritual reality of what God has done through justification. He didn't just zero out our account through forgiveness, because that's all that forgiveness did. It just zeroed it out. He pardoned us. But instead of leaving us at zero, he actually gave us something infinitely greater. He gave us the very righteousness of Jesus Christ so that in Christ, you and I could stand before a holy and righteous God and he could say, well done one day. Welcome home one day. These are things that you and I know we don't deserve. We know that we're not righteous on our own. And yet we exalt the Lord. We bless his holy name. We rejoice in him, remembering, God, you've, you've not only cleared away, you've not only pardoned, you've not only paid in full, but you've given me everything in Christ. We have an inheritance waiting for us that actually doesn't really belong to us, that belongs to Jesus, but is ours because of Jesus. Heavenly rewards, spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that are awaiting you and me because he's justified us. You and I went from a people who would only be called unrighteous and unholy that the moment that we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Father said, you are holy, you are righteous. That's amazing. And I would say to us again in closing, as I said earlier, but... God. I don't know what everybody's dealing with this morning. I don't know your past because sometimes the things from our past, they continue to haunt us in the present. Things that we can't even forgive ourselves from. We know God's forgiven us, but I can't forgive me. But God. You may have done that, but God. God stepped in. The God who can bring beauty from ashes he is the one who is for you and not against you. He's the one who's testified that nothing can separate you and me from his love, not even death. 
to stand in that reality today, knowing how God sees you and me. It makes all the difference that we would not be a people timid to stand before him, to come before him, to bow before him, but a people confident because we know what Christ has done and we know how he sees us now because of Jesus. Be encouraged today. But be stirred today at the same time. That just as God stepped into your life, just as God took you from death to life, he wants to do that for other people. And you and I are those people who he wants to have bearing that message of salvation to others so that they could know that through Jesus is preached forgiveness and justification and it's for them if they'll repent, if they'll put their faith in him. Guys, we have so much to rejoice in the Lord for today. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you. God, we thank you for your great forgiveness, your great salvation, Lord. God, we thank you for sending your son. Thank you, Lord, that even though our sin put him on the cross, that God, you raised him from the dead. That God, in spite of all of our waywardness, Lord, all of our failures, that God, you're gracious and patient and faithful ready to forgive, slow to anger, abounding in mercy and loving kindness. You are a great and awesome God. And we praise you today, Lord God. We love you. We worship you. Father, thank you for justifying us, for declaring us righteous, for giving us forgiveness. God, how can we not praise you? How can we not worship you, Lord? How can we not live for you and serve you, Lord, knowing all that you've done for us? The great debt that you paid in full for us, Jesus, through your blood shed on the cross. And Jesus, we thank you that one day you are going to return for us. Lord, we look forward to that day when we get to see you face to face. But Lord, until that day, make us busy about the Father's business. Lord, make us busy about your kingdom. Lord, would the word of salvation be on our lips. God, that we would testify, Lord, just as Paul did, just as Barnabas did, what you did for them, who you are, Jesus, that we would do the same with those around us, Lord. God, send us out in the power of your spirit to, God, be those witnesses, Lord, that you desire us to be. Lord, empower us by your spirit, Lord. Give us grace. Lord, show up in our weakness. God, would you bring beauty from ashes, Lord? You know those things that your people are are in need of a touch from you, Lord. God, would you be working? God, would you be strengthening, Lord? Would you be encouraging, Would you be equipping, Lord, today? If there's anybody here today and you've not just put your faith in Jesus for salvation, maybe you've never received his forgiveness, you've never received his justification, I'd love to give that 
opportunity to any today. That's for you, just like it was for these people in the synagogue. This word of salvation is for you today. If there's any that would stand saying, that's me, I want to receive Jesus. Maybe there's somebody online this morning and that's you. You need Jesus' forgiveness. You need his justification. I want to encourage you even now, if that's you, that you would just say, Jesus, I believe in you. Jesus, I put my faith and trust in you. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Father, would you declare me righteous? Would you justify me? Father, forgive me and cleanse me. Make me a new creation in Christ Jesus. Would you seal me with your spirit and save me? And Lord, would you fill me with your spirit and help me to live for you? Jesus, I believe you died on the cross. I believe that you rose from the grave. Jesus, be my Savior and be my Lord. I just encourage you as you do that, as you make that decision, the Bible gives confidence that you shall be saved. And Lord, we just thank you this morning, God. Pray that, God, you would keep these things in the front of our minds. That, Lord, we wouldn't forget, we wouldn't be forgetful hearers of your word, but Lord, we'd be doers of it. Lord, help us to walk in the confidence that we've been given in Christ Jesus. And God, would you lead us this coming week, Lord, that we would be faithful representatives of you, Lord, to a world that's dying in need of you. We thank you, Father. We praise you, and we sing these songs to you now, Lord, and take the communion elements, Lord, remembering, Jesus, your body that was broken, your blood that was shed. We do these things as we commune with you, Lord, experience fellowship with you. We just praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.